0: A couple spends the day at the mall contemplating the woes of marital bliss.
1: While a gangster spends a day at home considering a new career. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. <laughs> Ah, you know, it's a little bittersweet. That would be uh, Bette Midler. That's the Queen of Touchstone. We've got our our last movie that she does for the studio, and that's her singing a song called You Do Something to Me, which comes from the first movie that we're going to discuss today. Welcome to Out a Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter, at Mike deKalb And on the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. You can also find him on Twitter, at Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing this day?
0: I am doing well. You know, I got up early today ran 5k and i say ran when i should probably say walk but uh yeah so i'm ready i'm pumped ready to get into the two films that we are discussing on this episode
1: yeah we've got a new year and now we're into 1991 the the hits keep coming but uh like as i mentioned we 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 get to say farewell to a uh, wonderful person who's been involved with touchstone almost from the beginning and he's done she's done quite well Uh, The first film we're going to discuss was released on February 22nd, 1991, and it's called Scenes from a Mall. Touchstone Pictures presents Bette Midler and Woody Allen After 16 years of marriage He's doing the honorable thing He's telling the
0: truth
2: I had an affair
0: The whole truth
2: Did she do tricks in bed, things I don't do? No, no
1: Yes, actually she did
0: And nothing but the truth
2: I Have there been others? Two, yes, and there were one-nighters night Scenes from a mall
1: Three, actually, if you count the Hucker in Dallas But that, that was business, I was totally business They sent it to my room, I couldn't refuse It was a gift Rated R
0: Starts Friday at a theater near
2: you
1: Yes, writer-director Paul Mazursky is returning to Touchstone. Having uh he he made Down Up in Beverly Hills for the studio back in 1986, and in the interim he'd made two films: uh, Moon Over Parador in 1988 and Enemies: A Love Story in 1989. Chad, I think you told me off the air that you watched Enemies: A Love Story recently.
0: Yeah, after watching scenes from them all, I wanted to go and see what Mazursky had done, you know, just prior to it. So I watched Enemies. A love story, which is available, I believe, on Amazon or IMDb TV via Amazon. So you get commercials with it, and it's—I can't—I don't want to say it's a good movie, but I would also not say don't watch it. it it's an interesting film. Um, mm-hmm. I will—I will put it that way. So if you're a big Mazursky fan or uh, curious to know how a movie entitled *Enemies: A Love Story* plays out, <laughs> go check it out.
1: Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that with, when it comes to Mizurski's film, you either kind Mizerski's films, you either like them or you don't. I, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what we had with Down and Up in Beverly Hills. I mean, I remember we'll, we probably discussed it on that episode, but it was not quite what I was expecting. Like, I thought it was going to be more of a wacky comedy, but I guess mm-hmm. it was more of like his his sort of his dark tale about Los An- about Los Angeles elite and and him kind of poking fun at that. Um, but for scenes from them all, he like I said, he's going back to the same the same genre in that regard. Uh, the co-writer of the film is he'd worked with Paul Mazursky before. His name is Roger L. Simon. He was a novelist turned screenwriter. He and he'd collaborated with Paul Mazursky on the screenplay for Enemies A Love Story, which they both got an Oscar nomination for that. And he also wrote a series of detective novels featuring a character called Moses Wine in the nineteen seventies. The first was called The Big Fix, which was adapted into a 1978 feature of the same name, starring the King of Touchstone, who was also in Down and Up Beverly Hills, Richard Dreyfus. Um, Roger Simon also wrote the screenplay for the 1981 Richard Pryor vehicle, Bustin' Loose, which I remember that one from my childhood. I don't know if I ever saw it, but I do remember that one. It's and one oh, what's
0: that? I was going to say, yeah, that's one that I just watched this year again, because I had watched it as a kid and hadn't seen it since, and it's... Uh, it's a, it's a good film. I would recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it.
1: Yeah. And he also wrote and directed a 1985 indie comedy called my man, Adam, which I think you might have to check that one out. Cause it sounds like it could be like kind of a soul man type of thing where it's uh, with race relations and, mm. you know, it was a white character and a black, uh, it's, it, it's a goofy little comedy from what I, what I was describing. I could be totally wrong because I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh Yes, and as we uh, mentioned it before, this is the last of seven films for the Queen of Touchstone, Bette Midler, who was coming off of 1990s Stella, which, like you said, I you know we, we just recorded our, our um, Ronnie Awards for 1990, and I think you know I, I'm wondering like Touchstone films don't really seem to have these great lead female performances, but I think I thought I thought it was weird that we didn't bring up Stella, like we didn't bring up Bette Midler's performance in Stella, mm-hmm. like. It wasn't just wasn't enough to carry that movie like she's she's good when she's part of an ensemble, maybe. Or she has someone to act opposite rather than trying to carry a movie all on her own. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's just well, I think Estella. you know, maybe it's just it's not the type of film that that appeals to you and I, you know, the serious drama of a single mother. Not really our, mm, our thing, maybe. But, perhaps. but and, as we did say, I believe, on the Ronnie Awards, that both John Goodman and. And I think we mentioned Bette Miller, give a decent, give a good performance. It's just the movie itself is really not something that, you know, you yeah. need to, you, you if you don't see it in your lifetime, you're not going to miss out on too much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, melodramas, I don't know if they translate to the present, present day, if you want to mm-hmm. call 30 years ago, the <laughs> present day. But, uh, and of course, last but not least from seems from all, we have Woody Allen, who returns to touch shown as well, but this time he's only in front of the camera, you know, and he had directed one of the three segments for 1989's uh, New York Stories. Since that film, he'd gone on to make two films of his own, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which he was the writer, director, and also acted in that movie, and the movie Alice, which he was only writer and director. Um, I noticed that you always hear this about Woody Allen, and you used to hear about Orson Wells back in the day, but these famed directors, they would, they would, do, they would take acting jobs occasionally, and they would, they would use the money to finance their own films. And everything I read about Scenes from a Mall was basically that. that's what it was. Woody hadn't, Woody hadn't been in a movie that he didn't direct in, like, 15 years. And he and Paul Mazursky had the same agent. So Mazursky wrote a script and said, hey, you think Woody wouldn't do it? And, and like, within a couple of days, Woody was like, yeah, sure. And he need, he, t- he took that money so he could put it into his own films. But um, Well, I guess we'll just go look at the movie itself. We like to look at positives and negatives. So I'll let you start, Chad. Can you give me a positive from Scenes from a Mall?
0: Uh, it takes place at a mall, which you know. I, as a child of the '80s, I am a huge fan of malls. I, I miss the mall culture, and seeing a, a living, breathing mall and on film, it brought back a floodgate of memories. Um, I, but I, I question, and maybe this is because I'm not from originally from a large city like Los Angeles, but when they're pulling into the parking lot and it's just gridlock. I'm like, I've I've never seen any other than a Best Buy parking lot on Black Friday. I've Mm -hmm. never. And I guess, you know, this movie does take place a week before Christmas or a few days before Christmas. So maybe the Christmas traffic was there. But I was like, oh, yeah, I've never seen a mall parking lot that busy. So I think that's one of the, the, you know, things are poking fun of at the L.A. culture. But sure. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah, the. Movie takes place in a mall, and it made me made me miss going to the mall. And and I think I mean it's more of an upscale mall, so you don't see a KB Toys or a Spencers or a <laughs> you know Hot Topic now, which would would have really been impressive for 1991. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah,
1: I felt that's about it. I felt the same way. Yeah, like I said, it really made me nostalgic for for the days of crowded malls. You know, and i i can appreciate I can appreciate a good time capsule of a movie. You know, what's funny was. Um, I know it kind of reminds you of like, think about movies like Mall Rats, you know, also makes me a little bit nostalgic. I watched Mall Rats recently because I'd flown to Minnesota and I went to the mall where they filmed the movie. And it's, you can still see some elements of it when, when you're there. But I, I, in a weird way, I didn't know if that, I didn't think that movie held up. It was 25 years after the fact. So it's fun to kind of go back to, and see something like this where you're like, I do remember a time like that. And I don't know, Chad, the movie's supposed to take place at the Beverly Center. Mm-hmm. And I went there. I think maybe once or twice before they renovated it, and now it looks—it just looks unrecognizable. And I know they didn't film it at the Beverly Center, but it's supposed to be at the Beverly Center. So, I, I, did you ever get a chance to see the Beverly Center before it was renovated? When I first
0: moved to LA, I had Easter dinner with an ex coworker who lives out here, who lives in LA now. Uh, we ate at PF Chang's in, okay. for our Easter lunch. Um, that's as close as I've been to being inside the Beverly Center and and watching the film I was kind of um you know I didn't realize that the movie wasn't shot at the Beverly Center that they had made a whole mall in Connecticut which we'll get to later but um they go to a theater in in the movie and I'm like oh I didn't know the Beverly Center had a had a movie theater and I looked it up and it did have one up until 2010
1: and then yeah. it was closed so okay I I remember seeing listings in the paper and stuff back Mm -hmm. in the day, but yeah, I never, I never made it out to them. Yeah. Um, The only, honestly, the only other positives that I had from the film was that I do like movies that take place in in one specific location over the course of one day. Like it's very similar to a stage play. Like if you think of something like 12 angry Mm -hmm. men, for example, uh, I I really like how it establishes the locale and it's easily relatable. And when you're watching this movie, I really think it, it makes you uncomfortable since, you've probably experienced seeing married couples like that arguing in, in your real life. And so it's just, it's, it allows you to relate that much more to the film.
2: Tell me about your affair.
1: What do, what do you want to know?
2: When was it over?
0: Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, 4.30. How
2: long did it last?
1: you really want to know this? Yes. I mean, is this really? Yes. Six months, seven months.
2: It was serious. Serious, serious. You know. If it lasted seven months, it was serious. When did you meet her? Where did you find the time? I did. I found time. You know.
3: After work, mostly. When When I was supposed to be going to the health club.
2: I couldn't figure out why you were working out so much. That's when I was taking your daughter to her clarinet lessons I'm and her sorry. soccer practice. I'm sorry. Is this I'm your first stubborn. affair or have there been others? You might as well tell me now that we're talking. Let's go someplace else. This is fine. No one is listening to us. Believe me.
1: All right. That's, that's it for my positives. Chad, have you got anything else that you liked about this film?
2: Yeah. The
0: fact that it was under 90 minutes. Because True. It's, a, it's, it's only 87 minutes long. But man, is it a long 87 minutes it's mm-hmm. just, yeah, yeah. I, I
1: felt the same way. When you have yeah. two
0: people bickering the entire time, it's just,
1: and it's uh. just—I don't know—it's—it's it's sort of like, and—and I—I think I—I mentioned—I don't—I just don't know if it's—if it's for me. If I understand these kind of movies, mm-hmm. yes, I'm married now, but I—I I really feel like there's been there was a there's a lot of these adult comedies. I, and I forget. I think we talked about it with Betsy's wedding, where it was so it's so nice to see a comedy that's aimed at adults, but then I also feel like the comedies aimed at adults. And again, I don't know if this happens in a lot of Woody Allen movies, cause I haven't seen them. but it always, they always seem to have these people, just this, they're just not good. people. Like, you know, they're miserable people. And that's my first negative actually, in this film was that it's miserable people acting in an awful way. You know, like I mentioned that the location is relatable, but are the, are the characters, you know, there's one scene in the movie that I just it cringe so bad. Yeah. And they go, they go into a movie theater and they've been drinking and they're having an argument in the middle of a movie theater and, and they have to get shush. And I'm just like, you know, and I know it probably still happens to this day, but that's one of those ones where I'm just like, as soon as they walk into theater, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to continue this argument in the movie theater, are they? And oh, that, that, that scene was really hard for me to watch.
0: Yeah. Granted, there are only two other people in the theater. But It doesn't matter. Doesn't it doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter. But And it's a subtitled film, although the people, it's an Indian film, a Bollywood picture, and the two other people are Indian. So I'm guessing yeah. they didn't have to read the subtitles. But, yes, they, they continue the argument, and then they end up, you know, having coitus, as we'll say, to uh. keep it clean. And I just, uh, I wondered, is Woody Allen really the inspiration for You Ought to Know? <laughs>
1: Maybe, yeah. maybe. All this time we thought it was Dave Coulier and it was actually Woody Allen. Uh, Chad, I'm sure you <laughs> probably have some, but give me a negative of this movie.
0: Well, you kind of hinted at this earlier and I'm I'm putting it as a negative is that this, this would work as a play. This is basically a two character play. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, as you also mentioned, these are not two characters that you want to see that much of. And so I felt that this needed something to break up the monotony of their conversations or their arguments. It's just, but it's just focuses on the two of them. And so I think if you putting bring in a couple, you know, minor characters other than shopkeepers or, you know, people you see in the mall, but just something, yeah. something needed to, to break up the ar- arguments every so often.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that's also, it kind of leads into one of my negatives, which which is that, you know, I know marriages can have troubles, but this just seemed really exaggerated. And I don't, mm-hmm. let me ask you, Chad, did, did you buy Bette Midler and Woody Allen as a married couple? Because I had a hard time with it. Uh,
0: no, it, it's, I guess it, it's a movie, so I, I can yeah. buy it. But, um, I mean, you know, I, I have a hard time with uh, Woody Allen and anybody, I guess, in a, in yeah. a film relationship. Because I'm just like, he's so nebbish. Is, I believe yeah, the term that used like, for him,
1: but isn't there a scene? There's a scene like where they're talking about wanting to get divorced, and then and she's like, "Oh, I guess you're just gonna you'll just go out to the singles bar." And, mm. and it's like Woody Allen, like right. is he is he really that that? that he was, he would have been in his mid 50s at this time, and I'm thinking, is he? Yes, I know he wounds up marrying mm. a woman that was 40 years younger than him or whatever. But is is he would have been some sort of catch in that time? Mm-hmm. I, I have I know I know that was his shtick when he made all of his own movies in the 70s and 80s. Is that you know he. Always is always the romantic foibles that he had to deal with, mm. but I don't know. I just I have a hard time kind of buying that. And and then on the, the uh, one of the other negatives I have in the movie, and again maybe it's just because I'm not overly familiar with Mazursky's work, or I'm, mm. I'm not a huge fan of like some of that uh, 70s type auteurs, is that the whole thing seemed a little in, too, seemed too improvisational for me. Mm. And I thought there was I don't know. Did you notice there were so many scenes where where Woody and Bet were either like repeating themselves or they were talking over each other like they talked over each other so many times and i, I don't know if that's supposed to be oh it's realistic but on the one hand like i don't know that reminds me of this great quote when, when years ago i went to the Aero theater and i saw a screening of, of heathers one of my favorite movies and the writer daniel waters was there and he was talking about how he used to he was he would get a lot of grief from people saying that well you know teenagers don't sound like that you know and he's like but it's it's dialogue it's movie dialogue he said if i want to hear people sounding real i'll go sit on a bus and i think that was the issue like i would rather have the conversations be more like dialogue rather than just sort of be so improvisational that they end up talking over each other but maybe that's added to this to the aspect of them being a bickering couple right (coughs) i don't know what do you think
0: (laughs) yeah i i I could see that argument being made that you want realistic dialogue but but again, you have to keep the story moving, and I think this movie, as I said, with with an eighty seven minute runtime, there is still probably 10, 15 minutes you could cut out of this film and not miss anything mm-hmm. in the
1: story. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I felt I felt they were relying too much on. I really thought you had to be a fan of Paul Mazursky, like you really got to be a fan of Paul Mazursky poking fun at L.A. upper class, and you really got to be a fan of like Woody Allen, so that you can let because hey, Woody Allen's whole thing is that he hates California and he never comes to the Oscars, and he and we'll get into it in the trivia section, but it was pulling teeth to get him to come out here just to film that movie, but like it was it was more just like, oh look, it's Woody Allen playing a Californian. He's got a ponytail, yeah. and he's just, he's playing this character that he, it's a complete antithesis of everything he's ever done in his own movies, and I think that's what they were hoping to get, right, was attract his fan base who wanted to see what he'd be like playing somebody other than the same character he plays in all of his own movies. Yeah,
0: I, I do have his ponytail in my notes, and I, I didn't understand it. I don't know what they were going for with that look, but especially because it's not like a lengthy ponytail. It's, it's kind of like he just showed up on set and they're like, Hey, let's
1: put a ponytail in. So man, it's just, but, Oh look, it's Woody with a ponytail. I yeah. ah, get it. It's fun. And I don't, It's I don't like stuff like that. Yeah. Like tell me a joke. Don't just show me something and then you yeah. try to make me laugh.
0: Well, speaking of telling you a joke and, and, You know, making you laugh. My my last negative for this film is you know, a mime is a terrible thing to waste.
2: Uh huh.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. That was actually that was my last negative as well. Was was mimes because I just I'm not a big fan, and it always reminds me so much of that great line from the comedian David Tell. Some things aren't funny. We all learned that, didn't we? Beatings
3: aren't funny. Stabbings aren't funny. Mimes aren't funny.
1: But beating and stabbing a mime—why is that hilarious? Uh, okay. Mercifully, we'll move on from this movie. Uh, well, we like to look at the, the presence of the touchstone touch—I like to call it. Uh, I mean, the movie is obviously sexually charged. It's a lot of frank language. You know, it's as mentioned. It's it's ideal for adults, which is you know, yay, touchstone. That's what that's what this studio was started for. But I mean, this could never be a Disney kids film. I mean, unless you could alter some of the dialogue and give them a—you know—the kids are in the movie in the very beginning, but you don't really see them anymore after that they're just on the on the other end of a phone maybe uh we've said what we had to say about this movie chad what have the other people had to say mm-hmm. about this movie give us give us some reviews
0: All right i've got two reviews the first one from our esteemed favorite reviewer that i like to go to roger ebert he says there is a theory about film directing which teaches that every shot is wasted that does not further the story when details are added to make things quote interesting or quote colorful they only distract from the forward progress of the narrative and bore us. In a mediocre film with nothing to say, the details might provide momentary flashes of distraction, but the pure storyline would be lost. These remarks are inspired by Paul Mazursky's Scenes from a Mall, a movie that stars Woody Allen and Bette Midler and is very bad indeed. How could Scenes from a Mall have been repaired? Only at the screenplay level before filming began. So, Ooh, Burn. Burn, Roger. Tell us what you really think. And then from Empire, uh believe Empire Magazine, it says, Mazursky is not quite sure what he's after. A study of a marriage encountering rough water while still anchored to a habit that is hard to break? Or is he smirking at modern Angeleno foil foibles, all their consumerist shallowness? Both and neither is the answer. His empty film just lops along beside this ir- irritable... I don't even know what this word is. Wing- winging? Winging? gene couple stop using 10 cent words in your reviews people uh its message as stale as it is as its comedy its message is as stale as its comedy so i guess we're not alone i i kind of expected this to get better reviews from you know these so-called experts
1: and yeah woody allen fans like, yeah I'm sure there's a lot of film critics out there who love his stuff right yeah or Mizerski Mazur- or as well yeah So where do you you come down, Chad? On the scale of 1 to 10, where do you rank scenes from a mall? Uh, I I
0: wish I kept my my rankings like you do. uh, Because I think this is, you know, I I guess Hello Again is probably still my lowest ranked Touchstone film. But I gave this movie a 2.
2: Oh, wow. I just said,
0: you know, a day at the mall should be fun. It should be enjoyable. You're going there, even if you're discussing, you know, relationship issues. And if I want to do that, I will listen to T.S. and Quint. Talk about the topic of hot flirty and sex in the food court, not <laughs> Woody Allen and Bette Midler talking about their problems at the Beverly Center.
1: Okay, well, I was a little bit nicer. I gave it a four. I thought it was, you know, great actors in the lead roles, obviously, but, but the subject matter and the characters left a lot to be desired. And you know, maybe it's a typical Paul Mazursky film about marriage, and I guess maybe I just don't get it. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe I, I just I'm I'm not cultured enough and astute enough to to get it i don't know um i'd like to look at if there's any kind of potential for a sequel or a remake no 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 to both <laughs> I, I i mean our malls even still a thing anymore depending on unless you're in a major city so yeah we don't need any more of this movie so from a trivia standpoint i mean i this has been written everywhere it's on IMDb and several different articles but uh woody allen had never set foot in a mall prior to filming the movie and he only agreed to be in the film if they would shoot it in the New York area, so that he could sleep in his own home, um, there were over a hundred different malls that were scouted in the United States and Canada before the producers settled on the Stamford Town Center in Stamford, Connecticut. Chad, tell me about Stamford, Connecticut.
0: It is the home to the World Wrestling Entertainment offices. As
1: soon as I saw that, and, I'm like, oh yeah, it's the only reason I know it's Stamford.
0: <laughs> yeah, and because Bristol is ESPN, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so, so all of the scenes that involved escalators or elevators were filmed at the mall at at the mall in Stanford Mm -hmm. but the rest of the scenes were done on a two-story replica mall set that was built on a soundstage in New York and this is what really gets me about when you have this eccentric director who's acting in this movie Woody Allen and you want him to be in a movie so bad it took them 14 weeks to build a replica mall set and they had to have 2,600 extras were cast and all had to be dressed in the most current LA fashions to make it pass. just at a certain point do you just say you know let's get somebody else like if, if you're gonna mm-hmm. have to go through that much trouble oh it gets worse as <laughs> like I mentioned you know the, the 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 mall was the interior scenes were filmed in this mall in, in Stanford Connecticut but the exterior scenes were were shot at the Beverly Center where the movie's supposed to be set uh I did see that the the mall the mall in Stamford was designed by the same architect who did the Beverly Center uh the last thing I have was that Woody, as we talk about, Woody openly disliked California, and he only agreed to film in Los Angeles for two days if Disney would fly him and his family there in the Disney corporate jet. And supposedly Jeffrey Katzenberg also promised to give Woody's domestic partner Mia Farrow and her nine children a guided tour of Disneyland. <sighs> Again, just... <laughs> You know, I mean, I guess if, Touchstone, if, if they really wanted to be in his good side and, you know, Woody Allen. I don't know where his movies that profitable at the box office, you know, at that point. Is it just it was just the street cred of having Woody Allen in a Touchstone movie?
0: Yeah, I would go with that. I think it's because I think he did make some successful films or, you know, at least award worthy films. But uh, mm-hmm. I also have a quote from Mazursky talking about Woody Allen's eccentricities including his disdain for elevators and escalators, which, okay, his fear of flying, like you said, and his perception of shopping malls as a science fiction thing, all of which had to be overcome uh, to complete the picture. And also Woody Allen doesn't like rehearsing, but Mazursky committed mm-hmm. him to three weeks of rehearsal
1: prior to filming. Yeah, so, yeah. Again, just bending over backwards yeah. for them. And like, you know, is it going to pay off at the box? Ugh. Yeah. Uh, well, real quick i always like to look at the soundtracks of these movies and you know this one it kind of reminds me a lot of woody allen movies it has a lot of classic standards you know it's includes cole porter songs as well as uh give me your kisses by louis armstrong it was a nice touch as i mentioned the the song we opened with was bett Midler performing a cole porter song called you do something to me so it was actually not bad it kind of added a little bit of charm to the movie. we can retroactively put that as one of my positives i did like the soundtrack um uh, but as we mentioned, oh, uh, the box office. Well, the film was originally going to be released on March 22nd because Disney wanted to spread it out from green card so that they could, quote, maximize revenues, end quote. But it wound up being released on February 22nd, and it finished sixth on its opening weekend with $3.8 million. Sounds of the Lambs was number one that week. Dancing with Wolves was number six, and I'll mention that because it's really interesting to see that in the same weekend— Two successive best, uh, best Picture winners from the Oscar Awards were in theaters at the exact same time. And I, I could see that happening with a re-release, but I, mm-hmm. I, totally, it, I totally spaced on the fact that Silence of the Lambs was released in February of 91 and won the Oscar like a year mm-hmm. later. I totally forgot about that. Just from a touchstone angle, uh, the movie Green Card was number 13 on the, the weekend that scenes from all open. Uh, the only other film that opened that same weekend was He Said, She Said. That's the Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth McGovern movie, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm. Which I've never I, seen, but...
1: Yeah, I never saw that one either. And then uh, in its second week, seems from a Mall drops to number nine, and that's when we see the release of uh, the movie Shipwrecked and also Oliver Stone's The Doors. Uh, it, it leaves theaters really quickly, and it only makes $9.6 million. Now, the budget was only $3 million, so was it successful? Maybe, but... To do to go through all that, jump through all those hoops for Woody Allen mm. to make nine point six million dollars at the box office with a February release, uh, yeah, I don't get it. From awards consideration, well, there there is none, you know. Surprisingly, mm. February movies, I'm always kind of surprised at any of those. Hey, we got the best picture mm. came out in February, but aside from that, yeah.
0: And I was real, like, real quick, go ahead. Talking about the February release, what get, what struck me is that this movie takes place, like we said, the week before Christmas. Yeah. Why would you you know, I would almost had said hold it until next November or December to kinda of tie into a holiday release
1: mm-hmm. schedule. Maybe well, that would have helped. Did, but, but did they save their Oscar hopefuls for that time? I Maybe mean, they just didn't think this was Maybe. that Oscar worthy. Yeah. Why but that's another thing, why was the movie set before Christmas? did mm-hmm. it have to be? That yeah. why that, it didn't it didn't add anything to the story at so all? So Bette Midler
0: I, could buy Woody Allen a surfboard that he can carry around for the rest of the movie?
1: Uh uh-huh yeah because you know that's when i when i think of woody allen i think of surfing (laughs) and a ponytail Uh, yeah yeah exactly uh i always like to look if there's any connections to other franchises that i like these are we're we're running out of these i mean (laughs) i have to to drop this segment from our show however there is a connection to a james bond movie because woody allen was one of the stars of the 1967 bond spoof casino royale and he plays uh james bond's nephew jimmy bond you know never forget that that movie is that's a bizarre one. I think Austin Powers borrowed a lot from that movie. Uh, and there's, I could not find a personal connection. I mean, granted, there's only a few people in the cast, but well, I, never, you know, I never met any of them. Yeah,
0: I have a very tangent, like this is stretching the, the usage just to get something in for a personal connection. And it goes more, I think, for you than it does for me. But you were talking earlier about, you know, you have to really be a fan of 70s auteurs and Paul Mazursky. And I found a 2005 interview... With a director who says Paul Mazur- Paul Mazursky's a huge huge for me. He's definitely one of my heroes. His first couple of, th- of movies, especially, they inform all of my work these days. But Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is my favorite movie, and that comes from indie director Joe Swanberg.
1: Oh, okay. He's a alum of our a fellow alum from Southern Illinois University? Yeah, I, I, he's probably one of the one of the people that we're most proud of. Even though I, I never met the guy, I think he mm. was. I think he was ahead of me. I don't Mm. know. I think a lot of my professors spoke fondly of him, and I I see see him all around. So good for him, yeah. And I'm sure I I may have talked about it at some point in one of these Bette Midler movies, but uh, Bette Midler and I went to rival high schools in Hawaii. (laughs) Obviously, several years apart, but uh, yeah, we were always kind of, I always wish we could have had a famous alum Mm. from our school. But um, yeah, I I, I don't really have a lot more. I just want to say in closing, the one thought I had when I watched this movie was, if you're single and you watch this movie, I think you'll wonder why anyone would ever mm. want to go through the process of getting married. Whereas if you're married, I think you'll want to pamper your spouse immediately and remind them that this film doesn't necessarily depict marriage, <laughs> which is because I mean, I sat on the couch next to my wife watching it and, you know, these miserable people cheating on each other and stuff. And I had to tell her, this, this, is, this is not this isn't how I feel. This is not the same neuroses that I have. This is this is sort of this is comedy. But, uh, yeah, so that's it, huh? So the, the Queen of Touchstone has drifted away and has departed her throne.
3: Mm. And you have some good points, too. You no know I kidding, to really? Uh, when? Uh, I, you know, I, have some, I have some good memories of, of <sighs> things, actually. You know, when we, 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 we would travel, that was fun. And, and when, when you would sit in the car and sing the Grateful Dead songs, uh,
2: you know. For some reason, I have a, a sweet memory of that. And when my father died, you were fabulous.
0: I mean it. I'm not kidding about you it. Know you know what I was? You Your mother, mother was would completely have gone crazy. Was I mean it. really, you were really. So you do. You a have a lot to be grateful for. for me. They may have good memories. I am trying to get rid of my memories of scenes from them all. And I'm going to go all the way across the country for our next film. And it's an action adventure. Wait. A a, a comedy with Sylvester Stallone. It's it's Oscar.
2: It's the biggest day of Snaps Provolone's life. I got till noon to look like a banker. And everything is going wrong. His daughter has a surprise.
3: Did he tell you I was pregnant?
2: His other daughter is a surprise.
3: What other one? You got two daughters?
2: His wife is upset.
3: You had a child with the new maid!
2: The cops are closing in. The help is moving out. I quit! And now Snaps is falling apart. He's zipping. Sylvester Stallone, Oscar, rated PG. Yes. Released on
1: April 26th of 1991. This is a comedy with Sylvester Stallone. I guess we'll talk about that at length. Um, It was based on a French play by Claude and which was adapted into a film in 1967. Now, according to IMDb, it's been adapted multiple different languages multiple times, but... Chad, you told me off the air that you did watch the 1967 French film. What were your thoughts?
0: I did. I, you know, I take one for the team every time there's a, <laughs> a prequel or, or a movie that is based on something. Um, it, it's fun. It's it's available on if for anybody that is interested. It's available on Voodoo. It is dubbed. I was kind of surprised that it wasn't just subtitled. Mm. Um, but I, I watched it like two days after watching the Sylvester Stallone version, which they are pretty much ninety percent of the same movie. The the French film Oscar, which I like to say just, which is why I watch it, just so I can say Oscar because that's how they say it in the movie. Um, it doesn't involve the subplot of the bankers and Oscar try or the main character trying to change careers. It's more just about the mistaken identities. Um, but yeah, it, so it's about twenty minutes shorter than than the American remake, but. Yeah, they're the same movie. So if you've you've seen Oscar or you watch the Stallone version, you really don't need to see the original. Or if you are going to at least spread it out over, you know, wait six months or so.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I I will probably check it out at some point. Yeah. Uh, The screenplay adaptation for this version of Oscar was done by the writing team of Michael Berry and Jim Mulholland. And they have a really fascinating uh, resume. Was, they're veteran comedy writers that are known more for variety shows like Dean Martin and Cher's show. Um, they were writers on Johnny Carson for years. And they also wrote for the awards for award shows like the Oscars and the Emmys. They wrote the 1984 TV movie The Ratings Game with Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. I, I vaguely remember that one um and they have uncredited work on a movie that i'm sure you love right 1981's all the marvels which is peter falk as the manager of a female wrestling uh, tag team
0: yeah it's it's on my list of movies i need to watch because i remember seeing bits and pieces of it as a kid but i couldn't tell you anything other than what you have to describe, how you've described the film about it but i am curious to see it to see one if it holds up and two to see what the actual plot of the film
1: is yeah, I would actually be curious to see it as well. Like, I wonder how true to wrestling, you know, as if you could be true to a, 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 something that is staged. Sorry, spoiler. Um, but as far as the writing team of Barry and Mulholland, the only theatrical feature that they have a, a, a writing credit on is the 1987 movie Amazon Women on the Moon, which is a movie that I really love. And of course, that movie had five different directors doing all these little vignettes. And one of those five directors was John Landis. Now, his filmmaking career goes all the way back to the early 1970s, and he became a preeminent comedy director with such films as Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, and Three Amigos. His most recent film was the 1988 uh, smash, if you want to call it, uh, Coming to America, which is still one of the great comedies. Um, I also noticed that he he worked on both the Disneyland 30th and 35th anniversary specials, which I, I thought, you know, we're talk about. The idea that Katzenberg and Eisner like to keep people cranking out Disney movies mm-hmm. when they make one. Um, but I, I want to I pull a quote. He's had this really long career, and I know he had the whole tragedy when he was filming the Twilight Zone movie. And he didn't do press for a long time after that movie was, was, was done because he had to do all the legal problems. And when he did come back to do press for Oscar, he was doing one of his junkets. And I, I read this quote, and it says... He said, quote, I'm doing press on this movie because I really feel it needs all the help it can get because I'm proud of this picture. I want people to see it. Of my movies, Oscar is the closest one to being really, really good. I don't know. That's just him being humble. I mean, we'll get into it with our own reviews, but I wound up really enjoying this movie. But I also have really enjoyed almost all the John Landis movies that I've seen. And I still haven't seen Blues Brothers. And I saw Spies Like Us when I was a little kid and don't remember any of it. So I really enjoy some of the work that I've seen from him." um sylvester stallone i guess he's the star he wasn't the first choice but he is in this movie he's been cast he'd been a hollywood icon for two decades of course with the rocky and rambo movies as well as action films like cobra lockup over the top and a movie that i always loved tango and cash um but i did read his only comedy what he calls intentional comedy to date before this film was the 1984 film, Rhinestone. And there's that great quote I, I watched recently. He was on the Johnny Carson show and he always tells this story where he had two scripts in front of him. One was called Rhinestone, one was called Romancing the Stone. And he had a few too many drinks and he chose the wrong one. And he, But he was like, oh, but I think the quote he said was, uh, it had Dolly Parton in it so I knew it would have a lot of support. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, <laughs> uh His most recent role before oscar was a movie that chad and i will both defend to the death that would be 1990s rocky five the only rocky movie with a plot in my opinion <laughs> chad you tell us more
2: about rocky five and your love of that uh,
0: rocky five i believe it is in my opinion the best rocky movie it's got the best story the fight scene at the end i believe was choreographed by the great wrestling legend terry funk who mm-hmm. uh was in roadhouse and i want to say he was in a movie with stallone but i if he was, I'm uh, oh over the top. He was in over the top with uh, oh okay,
1: okay
0: with uh, um, Stallone, and yeah. I just real quick, I'm going to throw out this Stallone quote um, regarding Oscar, um, <clears throat> just so that I can keep my impersonation streaks on the show going. <clears throat> Stallone <laughs> had to say, uh, you know, I uh, I look at life through like, through comedy eyes, and uh, finally, I'm able to do it on film. You know, I'm uh, I'm able to put out there what I think I am.
1: Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, it's always fun to see people play against type, and I we talked about it. I mean, you and I talked about this off the air. Like, I love last action hero, mm-hmm. and I and I think a lot of people totally missed that. But it was Arnold pl- kind of playing a little bit on his own persona. I mean, Twins was a huge hit as well. So it's you know, there's gotta be there's gotta be room for for that you know that yeah. the interesting part was that supposedly john landis came up with the idea when he originally had the idea for oscar he wanted john belushi back at the back in the mm-hmm. day when they were first tossing around it but
0: yeah and i think i read somewhere where part of the reason why stallone probably did this film is because schwarzenegger had had hits with twins and um there's another film in there the comedy that i'm forgetting um and so the rivalry between the two was, you know, if you can do it, well, I can do it better. So yeah,
1: Maybe that's I, th- I, I, I was watching the, he was on Carson promoting Oscar and still no mention. He's like, Oh, I got another comedy that I'm doing right now called stop. And my mom will mm-hmm. shoot. And I was like, I thought that was before this. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Oscar was, I mean, I, I have never seen rhinestone. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how much of a comedy it is per se, but I didn't realize that he, I thought, I, I thought, I didn't know Oscar was one of his first sort of forays mm-hmm. into comedy. Um, there's too much of a supporting cast to get into. One <laughs> of the great parts about this movie is that it has an incredible cast. Um, we'll just talk, we'll highlight some of the, some the, 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 the main performers, I should say. Marissa Tomei plays Stallone's daughter. I totally forgot that she had been on the TV show, a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'd only ever really, as far as feature film roles, she'd only really ever had like a bit part in the flamingo kid. Um, you got Chaz Palminteri's in the movie. Again, he'd only had a bit part in the last dragon. He played a cop in some TV shows. Uh, I love Peter Riegert. He's, he's great in this movie. He was in Animal House with John Landis. He's also in a great movie that I would highly recommend to everyone called Local Hero with him and Burt Lancaster. Um, of course, you have the great Tim Curry. You know, he'd, he'd done Rocky Horror and Clue and Legend. And as we talked about uh, recently, he was the Russian. He was a Russian <laughs> in Hunter Red October. Um, I did not recognize the the accountant in the film as Vincent Spano. I, 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 he did not look familiar to me. I looked at his credits before, not a lot of jumps out at me. He'd been in Rumblefish.
0: That's Jesse's dad, right?
1: Yes. That's okay. exactly who that is. He's so excited <laughs> and he's so scared. Uh, I did recognize the woman who plays Stallone's wife in the film is Ornella Muti. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, who is she? Who is she? And then I think by the end, it was like, oh, she's the woman from Flash Gordon. Hmm. That's that's all I recognized her from. And, of course, the cast is rounded out with screen legends like Don Michi, Eddie Bracken, Yvonne DiCarlo and Kirk Douglas, who is, is, was actually his first theatrical feature since a 1986 Touchstone film, Tough Guys. Um, we'll just get right into our positives. I, I think, talk about Kirk Douglas, the the opening scene is terrific with him and, and Stallone, and it really establishes the tone. It's, it's such a total throwback to those 1930s screwball comedies, mm-hmm. and I think John Landis is kind of channeling you know, Billy Wilder. I was thinking of movie one, two, three, mm. which I think you and I saw that at the new bev together, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that I love that movie. And it's just like it's so much dialogue, it's rapid fire. You know, and it also reminded me a lot of the Peter Bogdanovich film What's Up Doc, which is Peter Bogdanovich's sort of homage to the thirties screwball comedies. You know, it's got this breakneck pace breakneck pacing and it was a true delight. I you know, I love movies. like I've talked about it before. I love movies that take place in one location over one period of time. This movie starts after that whole opening scene with Kirk Douglas, the movie starts at about eight thirty in the morning and it ends around noon, and it's all in his house. And I, I really appreciate like that aspect of it. I, I wound up really, really loving the movie. Chad, you got some positives?
0: Well You kind of hit it on it with the introduction. The cast is just phenomenal because it is one name after another of great, either lead actors or supporting actors, and and so I, you know, I was kind of surprised when Marissa Tomei showed up because. I think everyone kind of knows her from, you know, my cousin Vinny. That's where she started. But you didn't mention that she was on the first season of A Different World, and I didn't know what else she had done prior to that. So that was a nice surprise. And the supporting cast—I know you, you haven't mentioned in your or written in your um, in your in your positives here. You're going to talk about it, but the the Finucci brothers. I'm going to steal it from you. Um, Go ahead. The Finucci brothers, which one of them is Harry Shearer, and it took me yeah. a couple of scenes to realize it, but that whole subplot with them, uh, you know, a, a gangster has been killed wearing one of their suits, and it's made the paper, like, the picture of him, and they're like, look, now we're going to be very popular because, you know, he was wearing our suits, and everyone's going to want a Fanucci, and and just that whole screwball comedy of, uh, like, one guy coming in and missing, thinking that th- these guys are also hitmen, Instead of yeah. tailors, Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a fun movie. What do you want? Oh. Excuse me. Could you tell Senor Provolone that we in a hurry? We gotta do another guy at 11 o'clock.
1: You do more than one a day?
0: Oh, summertime we do six, eight a day. <laughs> it's a cutthroat business.
3: And even we get backed up, we gotta work weekends. And we know like that. No, we family man. Mm. You treat it like it's a normal business. To us, art, from the beach. What do you think it is? You guys did this. Who else? I, Finucci. Oh, we get plenty of business from this peach. <laughs> Maybe someday we we'll do you too, huh?
0: And when we get through with you, nobody's gonna recognize you.
1: Yeah, that was my favorite scene in the whole movie. Like you said, the, the Martin Ferrero plays the other one, plays the other Finucci, and Harry Shearer. They're supposed to be tailors, and then Stallone is trying to uh, threaten his accountant and he tells him that they're hitmen and just, oh, I can appreciate that. Yeah, you're right. The, the, it's an amazing assortment of characters. You know, each scene always has some sort of punchline just ready to go and it was delivered by this, this great cast. Like, they, they all they all have great comic timing. And I, that's on Landis, I think. That's on Landis finding the right people, dealing with his casting director and, and knowing that, like, you need people who have talent to be able to work in something like this farce, yeah. And like mean, one of the other positives I had from the film was that, yeah, it's a little bit cartoonish, but I think that cartoonish nature kind of plays into its charm. Like, did you notice, like, you know, Stallone's character is this mobster, but his last name is Provolone, <laughs> and then like the other the other mob boss that wants to get at get back to him, his name is Vendetti, so it's like he's got a vendetta against him, and you're like, okay, it's a, you know, it almost takes it over the top so that you don't think about the violent aspect of what these gangsters probably do you know but it but what i liked about the movie so much was that it allowed me to escape into an environment that you don't really see very often these days like it's a it's a period piece and it's a farce and just what how would it be so hard to make a movie like that these days there's a there's an audience for it i would imagine
0: only if you put in some cgi characters flying and fighting I guess and you gotta yeah. blow up a city
1: or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um I could go on and on, but Chad, <laughs> do you have any more positives about this film?
0: Um I'll save my other next positive for from the review because they're they're kinda of tie in. So there I, I really I had a hard time breaking down the positives of this film because it there's just so much that I liked about the film and um mm-hmm. it all encompasses if I say it, I'm just gonna repeat myself in my review, so I'll I'll save that for
1: okay. later. Yeah. And I think from a negative standpoint, I think I was I was just kind of splitting hairs, you know, Mm. where it's almost like, do you can you buy into how ridiculous it is? You know, like, I think one of the problems I had was that, you know, there were too many plot conveniences like they have. Mm. It's all about these missing, you know, these suitcases that all look the same. Mm. And yet nobody bothers to open one of them up. They just go ahead and grab it. And then when they leave later, they find out, oh, I got the wrong suitcase where you're like. At a certain point when it's been mixed up once or twice, you would think you might stop and open it up, you know? And I think the premise can be a little bit too confusing, but at the same time, yeah. I, I really thought it was fun to get wrapped up in
2: it.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I, my, my problem is the pacing of the film. I think it's a little too long as it is. I think you could, sh- if you shave off about 10 minutes and, and really tighten up the, the pacing, this would be better. It reminded me of, I believe a future touchstone film, which I know you're a fan of noises off. Oh yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's like the character should be just coming in and out, in and out quickly. And, and unfortunately there were some scenes that I felt dragged a little bit,
1: but. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, again, from a split and hair standpoint, yeah. I I didn't like that. The, I feel like the music was, was mm-hmm. really constant and it was kind of overpowering at times. And I was when I went back in to pulled clips to put in this episode, it was just like, Oh, there's music playing in it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it's I know it's a farce, but I I just didn't think it needed an ongoing soundtrack the whole time. It's nice to kind of just drop in a cue here, a cue there. Mm -hmm. But it was just, man, it just kind of kept going. Yeah. Um, And then the the only other negative I had, and again, when I was watching it the whole time, and I'd be curious to see what you think, I wasn't like overly impressed with Stallone. I mean, he was fine. You know, he was just he was just okay. Mm -hmm. And I really think like I would have liked to have seen someone a little bit more adept at comedy because the movie, the rest of the movie, is so good. And but then I think, you know, part of the appeal of this movie is that it has to be someone who could be taken seriously as a gangster, though. Right. Like, I mean, I enjoy Johnny Dangerously, but that's just a that's a straight (laughs) comedy. Like, you know, I don't know if I buy Michael Keaton as a gangster. And then I, I read later that that Al Pacino was originally cast in the role. And that was actually one of the people I was thinking of that would probably could have done this really good because he hadn't quite veered into comedy. Uh, But I guess I'm not the only one because I did, I have found a clip of John Landis talking about the casting and even he agreed with me.
2: I made a movie where I, my lead, I lost my lead just before filming and it was replaced by a major star. I had Al Pacino and I ended up with Sylvester Stallone and I was making a very studio stage bound farce and it was written, the screenplay was like 160 pages and the movie is 90 minutes. Because you know how, like in His Girl Friday or 1, 2, 3, the dialogue, I just made it very fast. And it's very, it's shot like an old movie. But what I needed was Edward G. Robinson or Jimmy Cagney or Al Pacino. I needed someone who could come in and take the room. And Sylvester Stallone tried very hard. And he I have no complaints about him professionally. It's just that he didn't have the chops, you know. He has certain moments, some scenes, where he's not bad. But just that kind of dialogue and then wrap it out. He just couldn't do it.
1: Yeah. And as much credit as I give John Landis for the casting of her role, like he, even he said, he, I read later that the, the actress who plays Teresa in the film, uh, Elizabeth Barandis, I didn't think she was all that good. And even Landis said the same thing. He said that she gave a great audition, but that he probably should have fired her when the filming began. Cause you know, when you have a cast that's got just dozens of great performers yeah. in him, it's a shame that two featured roles, you know, the lead guy, could have been a little bit stronger and then one of the important characters that, that plays that plays one of his quote-unquote daughters mm-hmm. she probably could have been a little bit stronger mm-hmm. but again I'll, I'll take the averages <laughs> i'll take the fact that 95 percent of the cast is outstanding right. you know did you what are you what were your thoughts on like said stallone in the role And that's what well, i'll leave you with that uh,
0: i f- i felt he was fine you know i don't i think part of it is having never seen this movie and only knowing it by reputation which Watching it now, kind of the reputation surprises me because I I, I, I didn't have high expectations going in because Stallone doing comedy and I have just heard that this isn't very good. Um, but I, I felt he was fine, but he is overshadowed. I, I think, you know, is it because he has a lot of great surrounding comedic actors or mm-hmm. or people that were more apt at, at comedy? You know, if, if he'd had, uh, you know, an entire... Supporting cast of Elizabeth Berandes would would it have made him look better. I don't know. But, oh. You know, I, yeah. I thought he would. He was fine. I will. Do, I do have to say though that my my last negative is there's a whole subplot with him becoming a banker and getting out of the mob business, and the bankers come in, and one of them is the brilliant, the great '80s most hated actor, probably next to uh, uh, William Zapka. That is William Atherton. <laughs> and how do you make a movie with William Atherton and only put him in like two scenes? It's just a yeah. waste of a of a great actor.
1: So You know what's so funny is you know I was waiting for you to say William Atherton but at the same time you could have said Mark Metcalf mm-hmm. as far as one of the great villains cuz he yeah. of course was the dad in the twisted sister videos yeah. and he's in Met- Animal House right. and you know he went on to be a villain in Buffy. But yeah, like again I, that's what gets this movie. I I loved it. The the cast was incredible and I think what's funny is like I wonder if Landis specifically pulled back where Sylvester's not in every scene. You know, like I wonder if it was Pacino, would he have would he have worked him into more scenes, or if, because he was like, well, he doesn't quite have the the talent, so let's just highlight this amazing supporting cast that we've got. No. But yes, I, just go see this movie, everybody. Just go <laughs> see it. Uh, we look at the Touchstone Touch. This one's kind of funny. Like I originally started the Touchstone Touch as this idea of is there going to be Disney references, or could it be a Disney film? Um, could it be a Disney film? Possibly, because I feel like the violent and sexual themes of the film are very cartoonish. So it could have easily been passed off for the younger viewers. But uh, as far as Disney references, I mean, did you know that there was there was a line in the film where where he's complaining with Marissa Tomei? Uh, he's having an argument with his daughter and he says something about the fact that he says, you ain't Snow Snow White. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's also a, a moment where the, where Marissa Tomei talks about going to Club 33, which is the secret club. In Disneyland, that I was fortunate enough to go to on, on the day of my wedding, um, but so I was like, oh, "That's a little clever, little reference for the Disney fans out there." Um, While well, we love the movie, did everybody else love <laughs> like the movie, Chad? What kind of reviews did you find on the film?
0: Well, like I said, I I thought this movie had a much darker uh, or negative reputation, so I pulled two reviews and, and they split the difference. And the first one is from Roger Ebert, who's my go-to, and I couldn't find a written review of. Of Oscar, so I had to pull this uh, quote from the Siskel and Ebert TV show when they reviewed it. And Siskel i talked about like not expecting much and then found himself laughing. Ebert follows up and says, This started slowly, but then I laughed. And then I laughed again. And then Tim Curry showed up and I was laughing and laughing. It's a good movie, it's a funny movie. So if you can make yes, Roger sure. Ebert laugh.
1: Tim Curry, I think, takes it to the next level. Like I thought it was a really funny movie, and yeah. then Tim Curry shows up about an hour in, and then it just goes even funnier. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, Owen Gleiberman, who we you know highlighted <laughs> on the Pretty Woman episode from, he's a re- reviewer for Entertainment Weekly. He who did not like Pretty Woman when it first came out. He says director John Landis executes the mechanics of farce without a trace of the speed. The, the material demands. Every chuckle feels engineered. Stallone is reduced to playing straight man to a gaggle of stock Damon Runyon
1: hoods. D+. Ugh. Uh, well, we gotta keep him... Well, I, I like, it's nice <laughs> to know what the other side thought, right? No. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I Again, I loved it. I'm actually gonna give it one of the highest ratings I've given a to no. touchstone film, and that is, on a scale of 1 to 10, I gave it 8. I, I think it was had an amazing cast, a lightning quick pace and charm, and it was helmed by a gifted... Director Chad, where do you mm. come down on a one scale of one uh, to
0: ten? I'm only giving it a six, and I think that would probably be higher if I had watched this with an audience because I think a communal okay. experience would have helped make the movie better. But I, I again, I, it was much funnier than I expected. I kind of compared compared it in my mind to Big Business, another Touchstone film, which yeah deals yeah. with mistaken identities and the fact that you know things could be solved if people actually spoke and gave truthful answers, but I, I, as I mentioned, I found the pacing a little bit too slow at times to uh, to really kick it into gear. But this was, I'll, I'll probably, uh, I'm, I'm going to predict the 1991 Ronnie Awards. Mm-hmm. This could be the most surprising film of 1991 for me.
1: Oh yeah, and I wonder if it's just where 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 you're at when you watch it. And I mm-hmm. think the day that I watched it, I, I was I no, wasn't having a good day or whatever. It's been a really rough year, I think, for a lot of people. And then to see something like this was just, it, it just brightened my day. Like yeah. it, it really did. And I, you referenced big business. That's, a, that's another good example. And those are the kind of movies that people should be watching in 2020. You know, it's just something where you're like, let's just, let's just not think about everything else that's going on in the world right now. And let's just smile and, and laugh for a bit and be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we look, look at sequel or remake potential. You know, it's already a remake. So I don't know if I would do it again, but let me ask you this. A sequ- I think a sequel might be clever. Chad, do you think? What if you made this? What if you made a sequel to this movie, and you have Marissa Tomei as the main character? And maybe now she's the mob boss, and then Stallone plays like the elder patriarch, you know, like Kirk Douglas does in this movie. Would that work?
0: There may be a story there, but I think for what this is, you, you leave it alone. Like this is a one and done. Just because you're not going to. I think if you did a sequel you would have to go in a completely different direction than what Oscar was.
1: True. That's true. Uh, Okay. From a trivia standpoint, we mentioned big business. Well, the director of big business, Jim Abrams, who also was one of the three directors of ruthless people. He has an uncredited cameo in the film as a postman. I I totally missed him. Um, uh, The mansion set from the film actually featured artifacts that came from a San Francisco mansion that was built in 1881 and was abandoned after the 1906 earthquake. Uh, I read that after the movie was made, many of those artifacts were sent to the Smithsonian Institution, which is interesting. Now, the big story, the big trivia aspect of this film was there was a massive fire that burned a lot of stuff. And so, again, I don't like to just crib directly from IMDb or AFI, but I kind of like to make sure that I get all the notes correct. And so this actually I'm going to read directly from the AFI's website so that I can make sure that I I say exactly what I want to make sure that I point out. Okay, it says, Exterior filming began in early November of 1990 at Universal Studios in Los Angeles. Plans to complete the production within three weeks were thwarted by a fire on November the 6th that destroyed four acres of the studio lot. Among the casualties were the New York Street set, the wardrobe trailer and its contents, the properties truck, the camera truck, which contained photographic and sound equipment, and 21 rented antique automobiles. A production meeting was held the following afternoon and all departments agreed to be up and running within 10 days. Using publicity stills to recreate costumes and props, the crew began a series of 24-hour shifts to recreate the lost items. John Landis noted that he was inundated with offers of assistance from technicians throughout the film industry and work was completed on schedule. So I'm like, that's pretty amazing. Like It's, it's, it's unfortunate that John Landis has to deal with another problematic movie set. But it's nice to see that everybody kind of, they were able to recover and still churn out had this really, really wonderful film. Um, I, Kirk Douglas and Sylvester Stallone had already had a rocky relationship that dated back to First Blood. I did not realize this. Kirk Douglas was supposed to star in that film opposite Stallone, but he quit on the day before filming began because he had script, di- there, there were script differences.
0: Oh, wait a minute, Mike. Are you telling me that they had a rocky relationship
1: Oh, oh the, crickets, the crickets are back. I, I haven't heard them in a while. Yes, it sounds better than saying they, that they that they're had a Rambo relationship. I guess. Uh, but Sylvester Stallone does tell a great story about filming uh, their, scene, their one scene together for Oscar during Kirk Douglas's 1991 AFI Life Achievement Award ceremony.
3: Well, as you can see in Oscar, Kirk played my father. And the scene was supposed to be where he's laying in bed and actually just leans over and gives me a movie slap. Well... He's laying there with his eyes closed, and they're closed very tight, and he's swinging, and he's missing. So I said, Kirk, look, you were in that great film, Champion, and ever since I did Rocky, you've been dying to take a shot at me. So I said, I'll tell you what, do it, no problem, go for it, I can take it. <laughs> Let me have your best. Kirk, I was joking. Next thing, <laughs> forehand, backhand, right, left, and the director, John Landon, says, that's beautiful. Let's do another take. I said, "Were are you crazy? I said, I'm getting brain damage here. He said, ah, go on, be a sport. Anyway, we did it,
1: and I learned the hard way, never spar with Spartacus. The only other thing I have on the film, uh, I saw this on IMDb, and it said that when the film was first announced, that Danny DeVito was supposed to be the star of the film, and that Charles Crichton, who had just directed Fish Called Wanda, was supposed to be the director. And then I I also read an interview with, with John Landis, and he said that when he first got the script from Jeffrey Katzenberg, DeVito was the one who was attached to it, and it was going to be about an auto parts dealer in new jersey so i mean i i think it, i think i kind of like i like the fact that they made it a period piece that makes it more mm-hmm. funny and to me i think
0: yeah real quick mike i just want to point out too you mentioned the fire that happened and it, it's interesting because that made oscar become the last picture to picture to shoot on universal's backlot's original new york street and the first and then it moved to the orlando studio and became the first movie to shoot there so and uh, I have to say that anybody who has not been to Universal Studios, I believe it was back in 2009, 10, they had another fire that wiped out their backlot in New York Street. And so it's been completely redesigned even to this day.
1: It's more modern. Oh, yeah. so. oh for sure. Yeah, they're always problems up there. It's, ah, it's too bad. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, to look at the soundtrack. You know, it's got a really fun soundtrack. It, it was released by, there's a company called Veris Sarabande, who does a lot of movie scores and soundtracks. Um, but the Oscar soundtrack has a lot of opera and, and 1930s-era standards from Bing Crosby and Duke Ellington. The score is, of course, by the legendary Elmer Bernstein as well. Uh, well, this is the part I was a little dreading because I do how, how much I love this movie, but how did it do at the box office? Well, it opened on April 26th, and it topped the box office with $5.1 million. The other films that opened that weekend finished second and third behind it. And that was A Kiss Before Dying and Toy Soldiers, a movie that I loved from mm. my childhood with uh, Sean Astin. Interestingly enough, the Kurt Douglas connection, Spartacus was re-released into theaters that same mm. weekend in April of 1991. Uh, Oscar manages to stay at number one for its second week of release, and it only drops off 18%. You know, I, I was watching, again, I watched. if you ever get a chance, watch John Landis' interviews on YouTube. He's a fascinating guy, and he tells great stories. He talks about how he's made, I think he said, 9 or 10 or 11 movies where they made more money the second week than the first week. Because back in the day, word of mouth, and he's just, he made strong comedies. Um, the, the only other film that opened the second weekend of Oscar's release was A Rage in Harlem, which I remember that one really, really... That's the one with Eddie Murphy, right? Danny Aiello. I, I mm. vaguely remember that a little bit. Uh, by its third week, Oscar falls to number three behind the new release's FX2 and Switch, which I have seen both of those movies, mm. not, not bad. F, go watch the first FX, you know, and then Switch. Do you remember Switch? That's the Ellen Barkin, Jimmy Smiths movie.
0: Yeah, never seen it, but yeah, it's the taking the body swapping uh, yeah. genre to a different direction.
1: It's one of those movies that was on HBO a lot yeah. when I was a kid. My God, it was always there. Uh, of course, unfortunately, Oscar gets pushed down even further with the arrival of movies such as Stone Cold with brian bosworth uh and madonna's truth or dare as well as the next touchstone film which we'll talk about on the next episode but memorial day weekend it disappears and and it grosses ends up grossing 23.6 million on a budget of 35 million that's that's unfortunate unfortunate Mm. the budget was that high um but uh again it's still good go see it from an awards consideration uh unfortunately it does get some award nominations it gets three Razzie nominations and this is where i really oh that bothered me that that, that why this movie was fun it was different it was charming and yet this is where the raspberries just want to go just 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 spit on everything because it's oh it's got a big star and he's not as great and he's doing comedy so let's just make sure that Sylvester Stallone of course gets a nomination for worst actor he loses to Kevin Costner in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves I I don't remember Kevin Costner being that bad in that movie I think it's It's the accent Oh, well, yeah, it's like you said, is it just they like knocking the the big stars down yeah. a peg, right, with the Raspberry nominations. Mm. Um, Marissa Tomei also gets nominated for Worst Supporting Actress. She uses, she loses to Sean Young in A Kiss Before Dying, which eh, may be understandable. And then John mm. Landis gets nominated for Worst Director, and he loses to Michael Lehman for Hudson Hawk. And again, <laughs> Hudson Hawk is was just ahead of its time. And it's another movie that I absolutely love, written by Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers and The Ventures of Ford Fairlane. But uh, don't let the Razzies uh, deter you. Go see Oscar. Um, we we'll, we'll, Let's look at our, the connections to other franchises. And, I, you know, I love my James Bond movies. I had no idea until yesterday. I watched an interview that John Landis did with Adam Savage of Mythbusters. And he said that he was – John Landis was one of several writers that was commissioned to write the script for 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. That's when he was coming up. And he was getting into writing, and five or six different writers took a pass at the script, and they went with someone else. But Spy Who Loved Me, if you don't know, is, I think, the best Roger Moore, James Bond movie. And I, and I think I'm not the only one who, who feels that way. So John Landis actually wrote that script. Uh, okay, f- for a personal connection, we've actually got a few connections. I know we mentioned it on our Dead Poet Society episode, but I had the great fortune last year of bumping into Kurtwood Smith. On the Fox lot, we were having lunch. Chad and I were having lunch in the commissary, and Kurt was sitting a couple tables over, and I managed to go say hi to him. He's good in the movie. He's got a very limited role in Oscar, but he's he's really sharp. Um, and also, uh, as far as when I used to work at Fox, I was lucky enough to go to some table reads for The Simpsons. And so Harry Shearer, he would never come to the table reads in person, but he would call in, and so they put they would have a phone on speaker next on the table so that you could hear him. Again, Chad, did you say you went to a Simpsons table read or no?
0: I've been to one, yes. Harry Shearer actually didn't call in, didn't do anything. He had someone else reading his parts. Oh, wow.
1: Okay, yeah. So it was funny to to sit there, being a big Simpsons fan, sit in that room and have all these voice actors in (laughs) front of you, and then you hear the Harry Shearer voice coming through the phone, and it was great. But uh, most importantly, last but not least, Chad and I have both met John Landis, he did an appearance at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. It's over ten years ago. I could not find exactly when it was, oh, wow. but um, we tell the story that it was a double feature of Trading Places and Animal House, or Trading Places and Three Amigos. Excuse me. And usually, what would happen was with these Q and A, especially if was a double feature, the the person, the talent who was there to do the Q and A would show up at the end of the first movie, sit in the ba- stand in the back of the theater. And then they would they would the host would come out introduce them they'd walk up they'd talk for 45 minutes or so and then they would just leave all right good night everybody well this one was a little bit different chad and i were both sitting in the very last row of the theater and about 10 minutes before trading places is over john landis walks in and he's with two people he's with a friend of his and he's also with a younger filmmaker that was like a protege of his and so The movie's still going, so they don't know where to sit. They just grab three seats, and they're sitting basically right next to us in the last row. So after the movie's over, they get called up. They do the Q&A. He's great, as as usual. But then he decides he's going to stick around and watch Three Amigos. So he comes back and sits down right next to me, and he's talking to his protege during the whole movie, of three amigos and saying oh yeah chevy didn't want to do this part. oh yeah martin short was a little bit so i got to watch three amigos in the theater with john mm-hmm. landis sitting next to me doing a running commentary
0: and you're like shh is... shh well i'm trying to watch yeah. the movie woody allen shut up keep it down over there
1: <laughs> um and then i'll let you tell the second half of that story when the movie was over he was still hanging around in the lobby and you went up and talked to him for a moment
2: didn't you
0: yes uh after the movie was over you know everyone is hanging out in the lobby and john Landis and, and his the people that he's with are there. And I have my copy of An American werewolf in London, which is probably one of the best horror comedy films ever made. It, without it, we would not have the awesome thriller video. And so I, I, I just went up to John Landis and I asked him to sign it. And he wrote, beware the moors, John Landis. Uh, I don't remember anything he said, except for, I, I believe he said, you're going to go far one day in this business. And hopefully one day is <laughs> yet to come. Thank you, John Landis. <laughs>
1: Nice. And then what's funny it was a few years later, we were fortunate enough to see him again at the New Beverly Theater with uh, the director, Ed- Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright was, we had, had programmed the theater. And what he would do is he would show up and he would introduce the movies. He would bring a guest in and they would talk. They would do a double feature. They would talk between the films. And that on this night, I remember it vividly because Edgar wasn't there because Scott Pilgrim had been nominated for an Oscar for visual effects. And so he was at an Oscar lunch. And so John Landis was there. John Landis showed up at the beginning of the movie and he held out his phone and he said, I'm sorry, Edgar's not here. He's he's running late. So he so he emailed me his introduction. The movies that they were showing that night was American Graffiti and Animal House. So John Landis is holding out his phone and he's reading Edgar Wright's introduction to American Graffiti. So then the movie is over. Edgar shows up. Edgar and John Landis proceed to do a Q&A where they talk about American Graffiti And then John Landis introduces Animal House, and then Animal House comes on, and then after that's over, they stick around, and John Landis does like a full hour on Animal House. And I've I've mentioned this Q&A, it's one of the best Q&As I've ever seen, because it was like being in a film class. John Landis basically told you everything about how he made Animal House, and it was just riveting, and I was on the edge of my seat. I'll mention it, I'll say this one more time, and I'll leave you with this. If you get a chance, just go on YouTube, or there's just, there's so many talks with john landis and he is so passionate about movies and he is such a great storyteller and i'm so glad we got a chance to see a movie that i totally didn't realize that he had made and had forgotten about for three decades and i can't recommend oscar enough
3: snaps are you sure there was cash in that bag
1: yeah little anthony stole it
3: if little anthony stole it then he's got it no, you black kid, he stole it, then he gave it back to me. Why'd he give it back to you? To buy back the jewels. What jewels? The jewels he stole from me. He stole jewels from you too? Yeah, so he could marry my daughter. Lisa! Not Lisa, Teresa. How come nobody's never met this daughter, Teresa? Because she's not my daughter, Capish? Yeah, your daughter's not your daughter. And the cash that used to be the jewels is
1: now your underwear.
3: Now you got it! I got it! I don't even know what I'm talking
1: about! All right, so in conclusion... Uh, let's take a look at these two films. We always like to say, would they fit the Disney ideal? And I, you know, I think they're these are the kind of movies that remind me of why Touchstone was made. Right? You have an adult mm-hmm. comedy that they don't want to just go towards younger viewers, and then you also took a chance on a farce, which aren't aren't being made very often, with an with an action star in the lead. So I think they did a really good job. We may not have may not have liked scenes from them all, but I'm I'm kind of glad that they made it. What do you think?
0: Uh, I think you know are, are you reworking of the script for scenes of the mall would have helped that movie. But yeah, I I'm really glad they made Oscar at least.
1: Oh, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. And then we always like to look and see what the films released by Walt Disney pictures during the same time period. Uh, there's four, we got two from Disney and two from Hollywood pictures is also up and running. Of course, uh, from a Disney standpoint, they released the film white Fang on January 18th. And it winds up making $34.8 million in two months. And then they also mentioned – also which I mentioned earlier, they released Shipwrecked. That was released on March the 1st, and it makes $15.1 million in one month. Uh, Hollywood Pictures makes two movies. Both of them R-rated. Again, I feel like they're the edgier Touchstone Pictures. Uh, on February 1st, they released a movie called Run, which I saw when it first hit video, and I loved it. It's like 90 minutes long. It's Patrick Dempsey. He accidentally kill, He accidentally gets involved in a fight, and this mobster gets mm-hmm. killed, and he has to run. And it's him and Kelly Preston. It, it's 90 minutes and it never stops. And I, I wonder if it holds up. I don't even know if it's streaming anywhere. I, I think I checked one time and it wasn't.
0: I um, just watched it in the last month and a half, maybe. So, and I had never I seen think, it before. And it was really good.
1: What did you see? I thought it was like, it was like on YouTube maybe? or no,
0: It may have been on stars. I don't know. I would have to go back okay. and look. Um, but yeah, it's out there. I know I did not pay for it. So it's streaming somewhere in the universe. Yeah, and sadly, I,
1: I, I saw that it only made it was released in February 1st. It only makes a four point four million dollars over the course mm-hmm. of a few weeks. And that's that's kind of that's a shame, I think. Uh, and the other film that Hollywood Pictures put out, which I didn't realize was R-rated, which was The Marrying Man, the Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger comedy mm-hmm. that was released on April 5th. And it only makes twelve point five million dollars in the course of one month. I know we forgot to mention it already, but if anybody is curious to see Scenes from the Mall and Oscar, both of them are streaming on Hoopla, the streaming service from the public library. Uh, so that's it for this episode. We'll give you a, a preview of our films. On our next episode, we're going to get the first of six Touchstone films starring Bill Murray. And we also are going to have Christine Lottie returning to Touchstone for another medical-themed film. But what movies are they? Well, you're just going to have to tune in to find out. Uh, As we mentioned, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account, which is at Out of Touchstone. You want to shoot us an email, it's Out of Touchstone at gmail.com. My co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter. It's at Chad Smart. He's also the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the hashtag PCPN. He's got several good shows going on over there. Uh, Chad, do you have anything else to say as we say goodbye?
0: The only thing I can say, Mike, is I'm I'm going to tease next month's episode because I think it's going to have probably the best discussion between the two hosts as, well, you'll just have to tune in and find out why.
1: This is Out of Touchstone, and we're out of time. out out
2: Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
3: So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you.
2: Good night.